I know we're starting a little bit deep here, but I just have a couple questions that'll help guide us for the rest of the service, for the rest of the sermon. Have you ever been so weighed down with guilt that your conclusion was that there was no way God could love you anymore? Have you ever been so filled with shame that your conclusion was that God has no place for people like you? Have you ever felt like such a failure that you were sure that God would have no purpose for someone with your record? Welcome to part four of Family Tree. In this series, we've been looking through some of Jesus' ancestors as recorded in Matthew chapter one. And the big takeaway that we've been seeing in this series is that the kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people he came for. And we've already seen a remarkable group of people that we've talked through over the course of this series. I encourage you, if you haven't uh, watched or heard parts one through three, to to go back online and, and catch those sometime. But as we work through this, I just want to go back to those questions again. Have you ever felt filled with guilt? Have you ever felt full of shame? Have you ever felt like a failure and that God should disqualify you from whatever goodness he has promised? If that's you, if that was you in the past, or maybe if that is you right now, there's something that an author in the first century would want you to know. His name was Matthew, and he recorded a biography of Jesus' life. And what he would want you to know is if you feel disqualified from God's love, he would say that you have something in common with the kind of people that Jesus came from. Now, I, I know that we're going to kind of ride this thought out for the rest of the message, this idea of I, I feel too guilty or too shameful or too much of a failure to, to qualify for God's love. And what, you know, maybe he's for the people around me, but certainly he's not for me. And that's a common thought that, that can permeate a, per, a person's mind. And the last thing I want to do is make you wait 30 minutes or so for the conclusion and for the the answer. So what I want to do is I want to show you what God says to people who feel weighed down by guilt and shame and they are convinced they're a failure. This is what we're going to see. That your failures do not compromise God's promises. Your failures do not compromise God's promises. When he promises to do something, it is not dependent on what you might or might not do with it. When he promises to do something, he does it independently of you. Your failures do not compromise God's promise. And today I want to show you a a reason why I can say that with such certainty. And the reason I can say this with such certainty is because today we're going to look at a man named David, one of the people in Jesus' genealogy. Now, chances are you've all heard of David to some degree or another. If nothing else, you know him as the Goliath killer, which is kind of morbid, but that's kind of what he's known for. But in case you don't know much about the story of David, it's really a remarkable story of the underdog who came out on top. 
In fact, from the very first moment he comes onto the scene, he's, he's the underdog. Uh, God sends a prophet, Samuel, to a, a dad named Jesse, and the message for Jesse was one of his sons would be the next king of Israel. So Samuel has Jesse line up his sons, and Jesse starts with the oldest, strongest, the one with the track record. And Samuel shakes his head, no, this isn't the one. And fast forward, he goes through seven sons, and Samuel's like, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope, not him. And he gets to the end, and Samuel's kind of like, this is awkward, but you don't, do you have any more sons? Because <laughs> these seven, just they, they're not it. And Jesse says, well, there's one more, but he's just a kid. He's watching the sheep. Samuel sits down and he says, I'll wait. So they go get this youngest one, David. He comes in and the moment Samuel sees him, God says, that's him. Get up and anoint him king of Israel. And with seven brothers watching, Samuel, the prophet, anoints David, this kid, the king of Israel. But nothing changes because there's already a king of Israel, Saul. And so David, this kid, he's, he's carrying this promise, but nothing has changed. And just a quick application for us. Sometimes God will tell you this truth that permeates your life. It changes the way you see things, but nothing really changes when it comes to the circumstances of your life. What God told David is true. It's just that David had some growing to do. And sometimes that's true of us too. Maybe God speaks to us through his word, some words that just give us purpose and direction. Nothing changes because we have some growing to do. And David grew. Uh, there was one day where he was sent to give some provisions to his brothers who were soldiers. They were big enough, they were strong enough and old enough to be in the army of Israel. And so David gave some provisions to them, some food. And while he was there, David overheard this nine-foot warrior from the other army talking bad about God's army, the Israelites. And David's like, we can't stand for this. So you perhaps know the story. David tries to armor up, but he's too small. The armor's too awkward. He can't even wear armor. He's, he's just a kid. He, he grabs his sling. He grabs some stones and down goes the giant. Goliath is slain. And from that moment, David is propelled into this military career. He becomes a successful soldier, and quickly he becomes a successful commander. People recognize when he leads a military campaign or an operation, it is successful. He gets the job done. And at first, Saul was pleased because now this, this boy is like the, the poster child of his army, but quickly Saul becomes jealous, and Saul tries to kill him, which, by the way, when you follow God's calling for your life, it won't always make you the most popular person. And sometimes you will take arrows for doing the right thing. But David knew he had a calling from God. And so for a long time, David was fleeing for his life. King Saul was trying to kill him, and so he fleed. And then fast forward, finally one day King Saul died. And after a lengthy conflict over who would be the next king, David came out on top. And he was finally crowned king of Israel. From shepherd boy to king. And successful king at that. He, he established peace for the kingdom of Israel, something that had never been done before. And now there was peace all around. 
And David, because of this peace, was able to gather the supplies and the resources to build himself a, a palace fit for a king made of cedar. But one day David is, is walking around and he realizes that while he has this great house to live in, he notices that the ark of God, the literal and symbolic presence of God for Israel was sitting in a tent. He says, that, that's not right. I should build a temple. I should build a house for God. And so David tells the prophet, I'm going I'm to build, build something great for God. But then God, through the prophet, tells him, no, you're not. Here's the interesting part. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is how God responded to David when David wanted to build the temple. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. I'm flattered you want to build me a house. But actually, I'm going to build one for you. He goes on. Now, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And this is nothing new. This is how king, kingships worked back then. There was no term limit. It was whenever the king dies, his next of kin takes over. So far, there's nothing unusual, but now something unusual is about to happen. We, let's go on. The Lord continues to say, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And we know from history that Solomon, his son, would indeed build a temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I want to give a quick side note. A lot of times in the Bible, when God is prophesying what's going to happen in the future, he uses something called telescopic prophecies. And the, the, basically all that means is there's the immediate fulfillment, like of Solomon building a temple, but then there's also a long-term fulfillment that would only be fulfilled by Christ. There's that long-term promise fulfilled in Christ. And so here we see that happening. God is talking about Solomon building a temple, but also there is a greater kingdom that would one day come through one of David's descendants. And it goes on. This is where we really see it changing. I will be his father and he will be my son. Just as Jesus came out of the water after he was baptized, God the father said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Yet when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now the interesting thing is, according to everything recorded in the Bible, Solomon was never beaten. But Jesus was. Though he did nothing wrong, it was for our sins that he suffered. So you see how there's this telescopic prophecy partially fulfilled in Solomon, but ultimately fulfilled by the son of David, Jesus. But even while this punishment takes place, it goes on, not even then will my love be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this was language that stuck with the Israelites for 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had this picture of a king like David who would be established on a throne. And so even in Jesus' day, in the first century AD, the Jewish people were, were watching and waiting for David to return. A king like David. In fact, we could say this, they were expectantly waiting for a king like David. A king like David who would establish the borders of Israel once again and give independence and honor back to the name of the Israelites. A king with glory and power and strength. And this was such a strong feeling that in Jesus' day, people didn't even notice Jesus because he was not the kind of king they were looking for. They were looking for someone like David, the underdog who would win. But they looked for someone like David. And so we do too. When it comes to what God promises to to you, it's easy to set aside the eternal kingdom and expect God to fill our immediate wants and needs. When we want a king like David, it means we want someone who gives us a better life, an improved life. Someone who's strong, someone who's wealthy, who's rich, someone who can just make us feel good for now. That's what it means to want a king like David. And so it was in the first century, as it is today, we get so distracted by by immediate wants and immediate needs that we lose track of the forever kingdom that God wanted to send. And so as Matthew starts telling the story of Jesus, he reminds people that while they were waiting for a king like David, if they waited for that, they'd be waiting for a while. Number two, the son of David would not be like David. The son of David would have an eternal kingdom. The son of David would not exert earthly power and earthly authority. The son of David would not have wisdom that could be measured in Proverbs and sayings and Psalms. The son of David was on a whole different level because his kingdom would not be measured by the tenure of one king, but by a forever kingdom that could be established only through a person that can overcome death itself. And as Matthew continues... Or as, as we're going to see, as Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus, he's going to basically be upfront with his Jewish audience and say, are you sure you really want a king like, like David? Because David's great, but I'm not sure you want a king like him. Here's what Matthew did. So continuing the genealogy where we left off last week, Jesse was the father of David and David was the father of Solomon. Again, this is the way Matthew should have legally wrote this to follow the the ancestry of Jesus. But then Matthew adds this optional comment. Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, David had Solomon through someone else's wife. And Matthew just puts it out there to remind his Jewish audience, if you really want a king like David, this is what you're going to get. So what I want to do with the remaining time is give you the account of what happened with David and Uriah's wife. Not so we can stand back and judge him and point the fingers at him, but because what we're seeing in the series is that the kind of people Jesus came from are the kind of people he came for. And the son of David, 
came for people like David. So here's what happened. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So Joab is commander of the army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But all this while, David remained in Jerusalem. And it's hard to tell if this is incriminating David as doing something wrong. But what I do know is this. When a king sends off his trusted advisors, sends off his army, and is left in isolation in his palace, not good things usually happen. One evening, the story continues, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his cedar palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out more about her. Let's continue. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Some manuscripts show that the daughter of Eliam, Eliam might have been a bodyguard for Joab. Either way, because of its proximity to his palace, we know that Eliam would have been a trusted person close to the king. This is someone's daughter. And more than that, the person comes back and reports, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And if you continue reading in 2 Samuel, you'll notice that Uriah is one of 30 in David's special elite forces team. One of David's mighty men. The top of the top of the top. This is the wife of one of the soldiers who's out fighting for you right now. And so at this, this is the first moment where, maybe even the second, from the moment he saw this woman, he should have just turned away. Now this is the second moment where he should stop and change course. But he doesn't. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, which basically means there's a guarantee that she was not pregnant when she came to him. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. What should a king like David do? A man after God's own heart. This should have broken his heart. This should have startled his conscience into realizing what he was doing. But instead he did this. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent him to David. Maybe he's getting a commendation. Maybe David heard a great story of what he did in battle. What, What is David doing? Maybe he's calling him to apologize, to come clean. But he did this. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Get comfortable. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. And perhaps you can see where David is going. If, if Uriah spends the night with his wife, then the pregnancy will be on him. But that's not what happened. Next verse, when Uriah, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Now you got to think, man, Uriah is away at war. 
He finally gets a chance to come back home and spend a night in his own bed with his own wife. Why doesn't he go home? Don't we see videos about this, about the soldier coming home and no one knows they're coming home, but here they are and now they're surprised and oh, Bathsheba would have been so happy to see him. And David is wondering this too. He actually asks Uriah, what's going on? So David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked him, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And what Uriah says next should have snapped this king out of his fog. Uriah said to David, the ark, God's presence among us, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and his men are camped in the open country. They're all out there. Things are uncertain. And then he says this, because all that is true, how could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. And yet the very thing Uriah would not do is something that his king did in his absence. David should have snapped out of it, but instead he did this. David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. How could he do such a thing? When his brothers and his commander were out in the field, when the ark of God was vulnerable, how could he just pretend nothing was going on? And I love how one commentator put this. Uriah at his worst was more pious than David at his best. David was in luxury. He was living in leisure. And yet he made one of the most horrible decisions that a king could possibly make. So as Matthew reminds the people who David really was, he's, he's got a picture of him saying, are you sure you want a king like David? Are you sure you want a king like that? So the story continues. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Uriah, please take this to your commander. And in this letter he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Uriah carrying his own death note to his own commander. Joab takes it. And he does it. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Several men died because of this order. And moreover, also one of David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, died. Joab knows this is wrong. He knows that he's going to send a report of what happened that day back to Jerusalem, and David's going to read the report, and he's going to think, why did you do this? Why did you bring the army so close to the wall? Don't you know that even just an old woman could take a stone and kill people? Why did you get so close? And as, as Joab sends this sickening note of the battle report back home, he says, David's going to be upset by this, but just tell him that as a result of this maneuver we did, Uriah the Hittite died. So the messenger came back and told David the news. And here's 
the, again, the, the awful way David responded. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage him. In other words, oh well, people die. Are you sure you want a king like that? So the story continues like this. When, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she did what any wife would do. She mourned for him. And then as soon as the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And David thought, well, good. I did it. Nobody knows. But the chapter ends with this eerie conclusion. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I just have to ask, which one thing are we talking about? Isn't this the ugliness of sin, that it starts with one desire that you act on? And then that one act leads to another one, to another one, and to another one. And if you're a person who has as much power as King David, that power is wielded in a way that does so much destruction. And if you're counting, four or five commandments were broken just in this one ordeal. David coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery. He committed mass murder. And he certainly did not love, honor, and fear God. But I have a question for you. Do you think that you love, honor, and fear God more than David? Are you in a better position than he was? I think as, as we look at this one episode from his life, David and Uriah's wife, we, we come to the conclusion, man, he was just in a bad place, or he, he was darkened by sin in that moment. Are you any better? Do you fear God more than David did? Um, by fearing him, acknowledging that his decisions, his plan override your own. And just picture, David from a youth knew he would be king over Israel and that was God's calling for him. Do you love God more than David? David loved God so much he wanted to build a temple that would wow the nations around them. Do you trust God more than David? David trusted God so much, he went face to face with a nine-foot giant with nothing but a sling. Here's the point. Matthew wanted his audience to know that they didn't need a king like David because they already had a kingdom of people who were like him. And you and I were, were part of that kingdom also. It's just that we lack the power of a king to exert our desires and follow through with our plans. David is the highlight of what it would look like for any of us, left unchecked, to seek the desires that are all in here. The people didn't need a king like David because they already had a kingdom of people who were like him. What they needed was the son of David. The son of David would not be like him. And I know that when it comes to, maybe this just sparks some memories or emotions in some of you because you think of a certain failure that you have in your past and you, maybe you relate with David in some way. 
Is God through with you? I'll tell you what, after David did all these things, after God was displeased with him, God should have taken back his promise and said, you know what, maybe I'll give my forever kingdom to someone who's more worthy of bearing my name. This is not acceptable. This will not be the reputation of my kingdom. But God did not take back his promise. See, here's something important to know. David did not earn God's promise because of his holiness. David did nothing to deserve this promise from God that David would have this eternal kingdom and the Savior would come through him. He did nothing to deserve it. And so the opposite must also be true. David did not forfeit God's promise because of his sinfulness. God promised that David's ancestor would be the Savior of the world. An ancestor who would not be like David just the son of David. And can I apply this to your life and your situation also? What has God promised to you? His promise is that he forgives you as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sin from you. That is his promise in Christ. He declares that you are his loved child, and when he looks at you, it's as if he's looking at his own son who lived and died for you. God has made promises that whether you believe it or not, the payment for your sin was settled in full on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a guarantee that your king defeated the worst enemy you had, death. You did not deserve God's grace. You did nothing to earn this amazing promise from God. And therefore, the opposite must also be true. Bad deeds do not forfeit what good deeds could not earn. Bad deeds do not forfeit what good deeds could not earn. If you did not earn your salvation through good works, then you cannot lose them through bad works or through sinfulness. I know that in a person's mind, we tally up all the failures and all the mistakes and we say, how could God love a person like me? He does not love you or hate you because of what you do. He loves you because of what Jesus did for you. He hates sin. He can't be in its presence just as darkness cannot be in light. But the thing that made you right with him was not your behavior, it was his promise. It was his gift of grace through Jesus. Now it is possible to forfeit the benefit of his promise. It is by faith that we receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And if you block off faith, if you block off the Holy Spirit, there's no way God can get that gift to you. But that doesn't change his promise. It is by grace you've been saved. Not by works. Bad deeds do not forfeit what good deeds could not earn. And as the story continues with David... I encourage you this week to read 2 Samuel chapter 12. I don't have time to read, uh, read through it all, but here's the conclusion. Another prophet named Nathan comes to David and through a story, finally gets it, gets it through David's brain, everything he has done. And David's response when he realizes his sin was this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I deserve to die. But then Nathan replied instantaneously, the Lord has taken away your sin. 
you are not going to die. This is the kind of forgiveness that God continues to extend to people like David to this day. It's not by works that you earn his forgiveness. It's simply a gift of grace that changes everything about your life. The son of David is for people like David, is for people like you, people like me, who maybe in some seasons of life, we wake up to the ways we've been harming ourselves or harming people around us. And we think, how could God love a failure like me? Bad deeds can't forfeit what your good deeds could never earn. God loves you by grace. And that's his promise. And as a result, here's one passage that will guide us for what this looks like in our life. Ephesians chapter one. Paul writes this in the first century. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Imagine if King David could have a do-over that day. He's walking on the palace roof and he notices there's a woman and immediately he turns the other way and says, I am a king of the Lord. Imagine if he had lived out his calling as a faithful servant. Well, the good news is God gives you every single day an opportunity to do that very thing. Each day is a gift of his grace where he wipes the slate clean. He gives you the forgiveness you need. And he says, would you live out of this inheritance that's waiting for you? I've got a kingdom that I've placed you in. Not people like David, but people who have been forgiven through the son of David. And what he brings you into by grace changes everything. So think about this this week. The son of David gives life-changing hope to people like David. It changes the way you live. This gift of forgiveness isn't something to be taken lightly, but it's something that permeates your life for the rest of your life. And what I can tell you is that from David's Psalms that he wrote after that day, he got it. He realized how dead he was when he was hiding his sin but he realized the beauty of God's grace to take his sin away. That's what God wants you to live in. Not waiting for a king like David to make your life better, but a king who is the son of David who can change your eternity and give you a life-changing hope. So uh, Pastor Ben wanted me to note that this is not the end of the series. This is the last Sunday where we're talking about the family tree, but actually the conclusion is going to be on Christmas, as we finally see the son of David being brought into this world to rescue and to save. So I hope it works for you to be here or tune in for our Christmas services later this week. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, the account of David and Uriah's wife is one that can be embarrassing and shameful to to read through. And it's kind of awkward to preach on, <laughs> to be honest. But it's accounts like this that you didn't, you didn't want to be forgotten. And even though you forgave David, there is still value in remembering what he did. Thank you that Jesus came from the kind of people that he came for. Thank you that David wasn't just this outwardly pious person, but thank you for giving us a window into his ugly struggles that he failed at. Yet you do not call him a failure. You call him your loved child, just as you do with us. 
We each wrestle in our own ways with guilt or shame or being labeled as a failure. But I thank you that when Jesus came, he was not like David. He was greater. He was a true king who sought the interests of his people. And he fought the battle that we could not win. Thank you for the victory over sin and death that Jesus came to grant. Bless us as we celebrate his birth this week. In Jesus' name, amen.